0: But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos. Let me remind you where he's going. Uh, we saw it last week. He's, he's in Ephesus. He's in Macedonia, nor- northern Greece. He's collecting money to take uh, a gift back to Jerusalem. Uh, the Jewish Christians uh, are having a tough time. We think there's been a famine in the area. Uh, so Paul is taking aid collected from the Gentile world, taking aid to uh, the Jewish Christians there. Again, we see a beautiful thing that he's doing. He obviously is helping the Jewish Christians with charity, but he's also working to unite the Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem with the Gentiles uh, that are coming to Christ through Paul's ministry uh, in Greece and Turkey. And we saw that he even he's even taken a group of Gentile believers with him to Jerusalem. Uh, He's working on the unity uh, of the church. That's where he's heading. Uh, We mentioned last week that beginning at chapter 20, through the end, uh, things change. Beginning at chapter 20, through the end, Paul is making his way to Jerusalem. He's making his way to Jerusalem. He's going to say several times he's going to suffer and perhaps die as a result of it. So you should be thanking Jesus when you think about this text. It, it feels very similar. He knows that it's not going to end well for him in Jerusalem, um, but he's he's chosen to do that. So that's the journey he's on. So back to 13, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there. Again, this is a we section, so Luke is here. With them at this point, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to um, Mytilini. Just a piece of trivia: that is one of the major cities on the island of Lesbos. If you don't know about the history of the island of Lesbos, go Google it. Um, the, the, the history of the island of Lesbos, from which we get the word lesbians, um, has been more prominent in our era than it probably was in Paul's era. But that's where that concept comes from, the Isle of Lesbos there, off of off of uh, the, the Turkish mainland. So um, that's where he's at right now. Again, Luke is a meticulous historian, and when he gives you these names, particularly the first community that read this book, they, they knew these places. Semitolinae, so they they knew something about. Verse 15. And selling from there, we came the following day to Kios. And again, I don't I don't know what they were doing in high school when you were in high school and I don't know how many classics they're teaching any longer in high school. But Chios is the um reputed birthplace of Homer. You probably have heard of him. The next day, we, we touched at Samos. Um, Samos is uh, the home of Pythagoras, the famous uh, mathematician. So these are all famous places in Paul's day. Um, so they touched at Samos, and the day after that, they, we went to Miletus. Miletus was a large, thriving city um, in Paul's day there on the coast of Turkey. I visited there one time. There's nothing there now except amazing, amazing ruins. Um, there's amphitheater. There's amazing ruins there. That's all that's there now. But it was a thriving city in Paul's day. So this is, this is where they're heading to, and this is where he's going to meet with Ephesian elders. Verse 16, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, Asia Minor, the province. That's the name of the province, according to the Romans. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, He didn't make it for Passover. So, of course, Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. It's a Jewish holiday, Pentecost is. Uh, It was on that Jewish holiday of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell on the church there in Jerusalem. So it's now a Christian holiday also. He wants to make it to Pentecost, and um, he's cutting it pretty close. But again, notice Paul's Jewishness. He wants to make it Pentecost. So he doesn't stop at Ephesus. And we, We've talked a lot about Ephesus. That's the place where Paul spent the largest amount of time in one place, was at Ephesus. It's a major, major city in Asia Minor. Um, it's a large city. So what we think he's saying here, because he's in a hurry, he didn't want to stop there because he'd had too many people to say goodbye to. So he just sailed on past Ephesus about another 30 miles, and he stops at Miletus. Now look at verse 17. Now for Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the presbyteroi, the presbyters, the elders of the church to come to him. These were the leaders of the church there in Ephesus. So he he ports uh, away from Ephesus and calls for the leadership of the Christian church to come to him there. That's why what he's getting ready to preach is the only sermon you have recorded in Acts where he's speaking to Christians. And that's a very different animal than speaking to non-believers or speaking um, particularly to to non-Jewish, non-believers. This is going to be a, a, a very different sermon that you're going to hear in the book of Acts. So he's invited the elders, verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, so the rest of chapter 20, except for the very ending, is um, this, this sermon. And again, this is the only one directed at us. Uh, the rest of the sermons, he's, he's trying to make new converts to Christianity. Here's one that's directed to Christian leaders. So uh, we need to pay close attention to what he says. And it is a farewell sermon. Keep that in mind. It's a farewell sermon because he doesn't think he's going to survive Jerusalem. So here's what he says, beginning in verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Again, Asia Minor, Turkey. And he spent the bulk of that time in the city of Ephesus. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. Again, humility is uh, one of the primary... Uh, one of the basic core Christian convictions, attitudes, lifestyles. Uh, Humility was not respected among the Romans. They thought humility was a sign of weakness. Uh, The Romans didn't understand that, and that's part of what they would not receive in the Christian faith. Both humility and agape were not values among the, the powerful Romans. I'm not sure for a lot of people in our culture that agape, God's kind of love, and humility is a value in this culture. Uh, I don't know that we'd ever elect anybody president who had, who had a great deal of humility and agape. Um, we're a little bit like the Romans with our with our respect of of power and authority and might and all of that. But the Christian community brought something very different uh, to the world, particularly the Roman world. So here's Paul. Here's Paul not celebrating. He's not celebrating Christian pride, Jewish pride, whatever kind of pride you're thinking about. He's not celebrating pride. He's, uh, he's making mention of his humility and his tears. Um, I think it was Martin Luther one time said that to be a pastor, you've got to study, you've got to pray, and you've got to suffer. Uh, until you know the ministry of tears, um, you, you're not going to be a lot of use to other people until you really learn to... to, to to have sympathy, to have empathy, for your heart to ache along with them. So we, we tend to see Paul as a pretty strong person, but Paul knew well the ministry of tears. Early in my ministry, I read a book by Wesley Duell out of, as- out of Asbury College. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book in a lot of ways, but he had a whole chapter on the important ministry of tears. Blessed are those who mourn, if you don't cry some, shed some tears over your sisters and brothers and the pain of others, if you don't shed some tears over the world that refuses to acknowledge Christ, your heart may not be as soft as God wants it to be. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to cry all over each other, but hopefully at some point in your prayer life you have experienced the gift uh, of tears. Uh, whatever breaks the heart of God should break our heart. And if it doesn 't, we need the Spirit to do a work of of tenderizing our hearts anyway. look at what paul 's reminding them, and you know, and nobody stood and said paul that 's not how we experienced you when you were with us so obviously, the Ephesians are accepting of what Paul here is saying about um, his ministry among them, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through And here it is again, the plots of the Jews. Anytime you see that, just read Jewish religious leaders who wanted to protect their power, protect their status, protect their role in the Jewish community. But they were the ones who kept coming after Paul. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable on monday mornings we're talking about controversy and learning how to be assertive uh, not being aggressive not be passive but be assertive paul was not a shrinking violet he did not shrink he was there with humility and tears but he did not shrink from declaring there in ephesus anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house and again we saw that Uh, when we saw Paul in Ephesus. He did both uh, the Hall of Tyrannus and he did a public place, and he also did from house to house, those house churches. Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and Greeks. Testifying to Jews and Greeks of what? Repentance. Repentance is a core, core Christian practice, value, Um, The the spiritual life is a life of ongoing repentance. Um, In the prayer book tradition, some of us still use the Book of Common Prayer, which created Protestant English worship. Um, All of the worship services start with a prayer of confession. If you ever think you get beyond the ministry of confession, again, God needs to do something with your heart. Um, repentance, the repentance that brings you to Christ, and then the ongoing repentance that helps you grow in Christ. So he's testifying. He's he's almost summarizing his message with this, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God. That's sort of the negative side. And of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the positive side. You have to do repentance to do faith. It's, It's two sides of the same coin. Uh, you can't just do one or the other. You've got to have a life of ongoing repentance, and you've got to have a life of ongoing turning to Christ, converting more and more and more of your life, your attitude, your dreams, your will, your wishes to Christ. So repentance and faith. Verse 22. So you got his message. That was his message. He's just reminding uh, these Ephesian elders what he, what he preached when he was there. Verse 22. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. We've talked about that. He he doesn't think he's going to really survive Jerusalem, but he 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 is, as the text says, constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. He's compelled. He's constrained. He's in bondage. The spirit is dragging him to Jerusalem. And again, part of the Christian life is having uh, a. a a deep relationship with the Holy Spirit, an experienced, experiential relationship with the Holy Spirit. So he says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Um, Verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Again, sort of like Jesus going to Jerusalem that last time. Uh, Paul feels and senses the same thing. Most of us would avoid imprisonments and afflictions like the plague. Paul is compelled. He's called to those. Imprisonments and afflictions. He's, He's joyfully following the lead of the Spirit. You know, we spend most of our life exerting a whole lot of energy to find our way to comfort and pleasure. And that's just not the Christian lifestyle. We try to take the road less traveled. We try to make sure that we complicate our lives. We, um, we try to make sure that the Spirit keeps drawing, up, drawing us in to work. Um, you know, we're doing kingdom work here in this world. And if we're not doing kingdom work, uh, we, life can be pretty comfortable. Kingdom work will get us in trouble. Kingdom work will get us in trouble with the culture. And you see that in Paul throughout the New Testament, throughout Christian history. So he knows, he feels strongly, that imprisonment and affliction is what is awaiting for him in Jerusalem. But he still is convinced he's going to take that charity, that aid to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and see, and see what, what comes of that. Verse 24. Now watch this. This this, this will not... This, If you make this as a... Um, you write your book on this, it will not be a best-seller self-help book. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace grace of God. So uh, again, that's a core Christian attitude. You see it being exhibited here in Paul this is the important stuff he's saying to these Christian leaders in Ephesus. He's called them outside the sea of Ephesus because I think he wants to spend this quality time with them making sure that they hear it, making sure that they understand it. I think it's Stephen Ministry training and I've Commend Stephen Ministry Training to you, and I. I commend Stephen Ministers to you. If you're going through some transition in your life, but in Stephen Ministry Training, one of the things they teach is, I believe it's seven times, maybe five. But I think it's seven times. Human beings don't really hear it till you've heard it seven times. And as a person who has preached for 38 years, I get that. <laughs> you know, I remember when I first went in the ministry. They used to say that people heard only about 70% of what you had to say, that number has declined rapidly in modern era with, with social media and how, how, how stimulated we are. We just don't hear. That. We have spiritual blindness. We have spiritual deafness. And that's why I can hear people who sit in churches all their life. And, you know, one, they, they don't seem to ever get graced. They can sing Amazing Grace a thousand times, and they still think it's about what they achieve, what they do. If they're good, outweighs their bad. They just don't get the whole message of grace. I remember one time I was in a church, and um, it, this, was, this particular person had been a charter member of that church. I knew exactly when she started in that church, 1954. And she uh, did um, Christian Believer with me. That's an in-depth study of Christian theology where some it's like a disciple study and I, I, I remember this sweet lady been in church since 1954 very faithful in worship when we were in that section learning about the Trinity she came up to me and just thought that was the most novel idea she had ever heard um, I didn't even know how to respond to her I went, uh, my first response was how many times have you sung holy, holy, holy but there is a spiritual blindness, there is a spiritual deafness that sometimes can be increased if people put themselves where the Spirit is speaking, where the Spirit is moving, and they harden their hearts. If you harden your hearts to what the Bible says, if you harden your hearts to what the Spirit says, the more you harden your hearts to that, the harder your hearts will become. And that's why Christian people can sometimes be so blind and deaf. Deaf. The stuff that we say over and over and over again. Anyway, here's Paul. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. By the way, you, did, you do remember hearing Jesus say, You've got to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and fall after me? Our culture says you've got to affirm yourself, celebrate yourself, be your true self, be your authentic self, find fulfillment of self. That's different from what Jesus said. He says you've got to deny yourself. Yeah, there's such blindness. That's, that's the human condition. But Paul is reiterating this. I'm sure this is nothing that those Ephesian elders had not heard before, particularly from Paul. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I want no freedom. I want no freedom except the freedom to be able to do what God's calling me to do. Uh, I, I want no rights, except the rights to be able to do what God's calling me to do. Again, um, you know, we love liberty and freedom. We've got to be able to look at liberty and freedom from a Christian perspective. You know, I don't want any freedom to reject what God's calling me to do. I want the freedom to live the way God wants me to live. And you're getting an example of that. Paul was called to proclaim the gospel and the grace of God, not just of Jesus Christ, but of God. Uh, They're one and the same for Paul there. So um, Paul's making it clear. Yeah, he's going to Jerusalem. He's probably going to die, but that's okay. Um, Death has a tragic aspect. But death's not a tragedy to the Christian. We're in a win-win situation. If we live, we live into Christ. If we die, we we go to be with him. So it's a win-win situation. Um, Verse 25. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. You're going to see at the end of the text, that's what makes them very emotional. Now, we actually don't know, because again, the book of Acts just ends where the book of Acts ends. It ends in, in chapter 28. He's in prison in Rome, and uh, we don't get the rest of the story from the book of Acts. Um, he may have made it back to Ephesus. We, we don't know that. But at this point, because remember, he goes to, Jer- he goes to Jerusalem. He gets arrested. He then... He, he then um, he then wants to go to Rome to have his case heard, and that's where the story ends in Acts. So we don't really know what happens after that imprisonment. But as far as he knows, as far as he can tell, he tells these people they he worked with closely for three and a half years, you will not see my face again. Verse 26. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. In other words, what he says, he's quoting Ezekiel. What he's saying there is... I've told you the truth. Now it's up to you. So your blood will not be on my hands. He's referencing like the watchman in the tower in the book of Ezekiel. You know, he's told them the truth, so now the ball's in their court. If he had not told them the truth, if he just had told them, don't worry, be happy. Live your best life now. It's all about the power of positive thinking. Uh, Affirm yourself. If he had just told them that stuff and left them in ignorance of the truth, then their blood would have been on his hands. Uh, But he says, I've told you the truth. I've told you the truth. And that's, that's why I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the... And the next phrase is really important to me. He declared to them the whole counsel of God. You know, some preachers preach some parts of the Bible real well. They don't declare the whole counsel of God. You know, um, you know in, particularly in the West, particularly in the West. And by the way, I loved worshiping with the Africans in Rwanda. It's not there. But in the West, um, a lot of preachers just preach part of the counsel of God. You know, they'll tell you about the love of God. They'll tell you about the mercy of God. They'll tell you about the grace of God. They won't tell you that somebody had to shed blood to, um, to bring about reconciliation. They won't talk about wrath. Um, you know, as a parent, I hope, most of you, many of you have been parents. Uh, as a parent, you should know, I'm sure you, in your better moments, you had both a love, loving side and a, and a wrathful side in raising your kids. If you only had one of those sides, you were an unbalanced parent. Um yeah, a lot of a lot of preachers can preach for decades and they they present just an unbalanced view of God. What they say is not wrong. They just don't present the whole counsel of God. You know, they love most of the Gospels. They love the Beatitudes. They love the great hymn to love in First Corinthians, 23rd Psalms way up there. And that's all good stuff, but that, you got, we're called to preach the whole counsel of God. Uh, and Paul's saying he did this in his three and a half years with them. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves. I see some people that pay more attention to their neighbors than themselves. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Um, you know, don't worry about your neighbor's sin. Focus on your sin for a little while. Focus on your life of ongoing repentance. Make sure you, you are right before God. Make sure you, are, you have received the truth and you're living according to the truth. Uh, so pay careful attention to yourselves. Now keep in mind, these are Ephesian presbyteroi, presbyters, uh, presbyter gets translated elder, priest. What you want to call a presbyter? These are the elders. So he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Uh, this is one of the places where the word flock gets um, used for the church, particularly the, that part of the church that is under your care. Um, the word pastor comes from the word shepherd, which comes from the concept that the church that a pastor pastors is a flock. So he says to these Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves, and, because at least you got to do that first, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, that's episcopoi. He's blending these Christian titles, presbyter, which we translate elder or priest, Um, and then here's overseers, episcopoi, which we tend to translate bishops. Uh, they seem to be functioning one in the same office here. Um, so, so he says, um, you know, pay pay to yourself to all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, and to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. My translation says his own blood, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So either the blood of Christ is the same as the blood of God, or you can translate it if you choose, uh, which he obtained with the blood of his own. So it could be a reference to Jesus, too. But blood is important. You know, the whole, much of the Hebrew Bible is there to, to pave the way to why you need the shedding of blood in Jesus Christ. So um, Paul references it. Look at verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Fears wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, he knows that because Jesus said that. Jesus says, I'm sending you out among wolves. So Paul is saying, I'm leaving. After I leave, you need to care for the flock. Pay attention to yourself, care for the flock. And you need to do that because wolves will come among the flock. Uh, Wolves, false teachers... Teachers who present only part of the counsel of God, not the whole counsel of God. Um, so he's he's talking about wolves. Now he's giving them giving them um, warnings. These false teachers are they're going they're going they're going to come among you, not sparing the flock. Verse twenty. God, don't you pay attention where these wolves come from. He says, Another, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, some from the outside, come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. So these wolves will come in from the outside. These wolves will be, some of them will be homegrown. Again, back to that concept of spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, the danger of not paying attention to the whole counsel of God. Um, they will. Some will rise up among you speaking twisted things. Um, human beings have always been very skilled at twisting the truths of Scripture to making it say what you want it to say rather than what the plain sense of Scripture is. Um, the plain sense of Scripture allowing Scripture to interpret itself, allowing the more uh, the more easy understood text to, underst- to 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 interpret the least the less understood text. Uh, you, you, interpreting scripture is something that can be done. You know, I never thought I'd live in a culture where you have to say that. You know, in this culture, you got Christians who say, "Well, everybody has their own interpretation." So that just means quit talking about the Bible. Don't reference the Bible. Don't bring the Bible into the argument because everyone has their own interpretation. Um, that's a postmodern view. Go study postmodernism. Uh, if you go study postmodernism, you would realize you're living in the thick of it. And postmodernism says we can't know anything. I can, I can just know my, I, because of my prejudices, my biases, I, we can't know anything. You know, you have your truth, I have my truth. The, you know, we can, all, we can all take certain texts and interpret them in so many ways. And there's some wiggle room with some text. Not as much as people think. I mean, you know what? I don't know. I don't. I can't read what Paul's saying here and says. Well, Paul really is all about the power of positive thinking. Paul really is all about affirming people. I don't know how you read this otherwise, you know. But that's just a modern concept. If they, if if we had believed two thousand years ago, well, everybody gets to interpret scripture the way they want to. We'd have never left Jerusalem. Paul would have been put out of work, I'll be out of work. I mean, the Christian faith has been built. We have creeds. We have doctrines. And um, I mean, like here, we, we disagree in the body of Christ a little bit on the difference between bishops and elders. But that's okay. That, that kind of stuff we can have disagreement over. Some of us view bishops differently. Some of us view elders differently. But that's not, that's not the way the whole Bible's written. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. I can't think about one way to interpret that one. I mean, but, but in, a, in a postmodern world, because it's done with all, all anything written down. You know, you can't, even, you can't even study history in a postmodern world because if you have a text, let's say from Josephus, talking about the Jewish wars, postmodernism, say you can't understand that text. The only thing you'll know from reading that text is you'll know what Josephus thought. There's no, there's no basis in reality. And you have to read stuff critically sometimes. Sometimes you get a little more of Josephus than you do of history, but sometimes you get some history. Uh, The Romans did destroy the temple. There's no way around interpreting what Josephus says about that. The Romans did destroy the temple. So it's easy to twist things. Um, But the Bible is not a, a secret code. God didn't give it to us as that. That's why in every Christian tradition we have statements of faith as to how we view the Bible. And again, they're ignored in the West right now. Go to our website, look at our statement of faith, and you'll see a, a basic article there about what we believe Scripture to be. It is sufficient, it is authoritative, and it, 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 is, it is complete, sufficient, authoritative in faith and practice. I mean, you know, people just act like People started reading the Bible last week sometime. And the Jews have had it for 3,000 years, and we added the New Testament 2,000 years ago. So we sort of knew how to do this. That's why we can look at some teaching, some preaching, and say, that's twisted. And we can have enough sense to say that. And Paul's saying that some of these wolves are going to come among you, they're going to some develop among you, and they are going to be speaking twisted things. To draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone. And there it is again with tears. When you think about Paul's ministry, I don't know that tears is what comes to mind, but uh, here he's mentioned it twice as he's speaking to the Christian leaders here. I mean, he wept over the disbelief, he wept over the immorality. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers from the 1800s. He was the prince of the pulpit, had the biggest church in London, Metropolitan Tabernacle. Uh, his preaching has held up over the last 100 years. I still get blessed when I read anything that Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote. He always told he even he developed a preacher's school at one point. He said, always preach hell, but please preach hell with tears in your eyes. Yeah, if you're going to preach the whole counsel of God, you've got to preach about hell. Now, my problem is I see some preachers who enjoy hell a little too much. And they love telling people to go there. So don't just avoid it, but uh, do it in the right attitude. Um, anyway, there you see Paul's reference to tears again. And he was with him a little over three years in Ephesus. Verse 32, And now I commend you to God. He's getting ready to leave. I commend you to God and to the word... Of his grace. And again, keep in mind for Paul, the only Bible was the Old Testament. New Testament was being written. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Uh, People who stray, they begin their straying from God by straying from the word. so he commends them to God into the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Being sanctified, that's a good theological term, it means to be made holy. And, and what he's talking about there is how we are made holy in Christ, uh, not so much in ourselves. But in Christ, we have a new standing before God. Uh, in Christ, um, we have a new position before God. Uh, when God looks at us now... If we're in Christ, he doesn't see our sin. He sees his beloved son, Jesus Christ. So that's how we're set apart in Jesus Christ. Uh, So um, he goes on, verse 33, I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel. He knew that there were going to be wolves who will come into the church and it'll be all about money. And he's making sure that they remember he never did it for the money. Um, you yourselves know that these hands, his hands ministered to my necessities and to those and to those who were with me. How does he, how did his man, how did his hands minister to his necessities? He was a tent maker, he worked. Uh, even though he said clearly he could have earned his keep, earned his living from the preaching of the gospel. Because at this point in history, because of who Paul was and because of him traveling and because of people not knowing who he was, he chose to to be a bivocational pastor. And that's why he chose to be a tent maker. He, He earned his keep. He didn't take money from the Christians in those communities. Verse 35, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard, working hard. Our culture needs to learn that one again, too. That by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember, this is interesting, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. If you have a red letter edition, those letters should be in red. Not all, not all of the words of Jesus are in the Gospels. There's stuff that Jesus said that we don't have recorded. At the end of John's Gospel, perhaps you remember John's Gospel saying that if everything that Jesus ever said or did had been recorded, the world couldn't contain the books, So, there's stuff that Jesus said and did that aren't recorded. This is one of them. Uh, Paul's quoting Jesus is more blessed to give than to receive. Um, If you go to the Gospels, try to find Jesus quoting that, you're not going to find it. So, again, they they knew other stuff about Jesus. Um, But notice that's where he ends his sermon to these Christians is more blessed to give than to receive. Um, Most people think it's more blessed to receive than to give. But he's, make, he's very clear here. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So that's his sermon. His, he's called these elders over to Miletus. He, kind of doing a little retreat with them. He got them out of the, the hustle and the bustle of Ephesus. And they came to sit with him. Uh, here's the response as chapter 20 closes. And when he had said these things, he knelt down. We Christians kneel when we pray. He knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. Nobody ever told them big boys don't cry. That's a pathological thing to say to kids. Anyway, so they all prayed, they all, pray, all cried, much weeping on their part. They embraced Paul and they kissed him. Still very much um, part of the Middle Eastern culture. They kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. Uh, an amazing text. And I hope you can feel how he preaches differently to a group of Christians than he did when he was trying to convert people to Christ. Um, powerful text. We we need to f- focus on this more often. If I were preaching a sermon in an ordination setting, this would be the text I would use, by the way. Um, I think I think God and Paul purposefully keep ambiguous elder and bishop here, because they look like the same thing here. Elders, bishops, presbyters, overseers. If you're in leadership, and all of you are in leadership in the Christian community somehow, somebody's watching you to see how to do Christianity. And you need to realize that. Somebody's watching you to see how to do Christianity. So, uh, you know, we need to hear this sermon from Paul a lot. Well, this is a wonderful place to stop. Um, I hope that you'll reread this. Don't, don't let it become unfamiliar to you because Paul is sort of summarizing his life, his purpose, his mission. He's talking about what's important to us Christians here. He's talking about how he, he's courageous. He's not going to shy away from, from difficulty, from conflict. Uh, he, he's he's going to head straight into the affliction if God calls him to do that. And uh, again, we need to talk more about courage among Christians in this age. So, I'm glad you heard this. I'm glad you heard this. So, we got some more mail from Pastor um, I actually
1: have I'm going to call on you to
0: here. pray again. I, I want to make sure y'all know he's a preacher. I like to keep preachers working. There's no retirement in the Bible, and uh, you know I know I got uh, go talk to Quentin Schultz here in the church. He says that I just keep him in a pulpit somewhere because pastors don't retire. Tell him uh, about that. That I'm gonna get you to pray.
1: Okay, I actually have I actually have one other announcement too that I thought I would share with you guys. Um, some of you might know that this past weekend we had Dr. Gary Chapman come do a marriage conference here and. There are over um, 680 people that registered for that. It was wonderful. But I wanted to make an announcement that this church is offering a marriage small group that is starting tonight. But the actual first session is not going to start until next Wednesday night. So if you know anyone who would like to be a part of that, they don't have to belong to this church. Um, And it can be right now we have leaders that are um, a couple that's older, a couple like my husband and I, um, and then a younger couple. So leading a lot of different age couples are going to be leading these small groups. And, um, we would love for couples of all ages to become part of it and it will be for five sessions. So the official first session of the five will start next Wednesday night. And if people want to register, um, it's free to register. They would need to, just contact the church office, preferably by this Friday, so that we can order more workbooks. And again, it'll be a marriage small group. It's um, it's Gary Chapman's study called The Marriage You've Always Wanted. And it's actually the five sessions that he did at the marriage conference. So it's the same five topics that he did at the marriage conference, but it's more in-depth. And um, we would love for more couples to sign up, so again, if you know anyone or if you're interested yourself, um, please let the church office know by Friday. And I have a letter from Pastor Herve that I'll pass around after we close in prayer. So.
0: Go ahead, Nick, you're coming. Um, yeah, it was amazing this past weekend to watch all the people uh, show up here on uh, for most of a Saturday uh, to learn how to strengthen their their marriages and their relationships. I was really thrilled to see several single folks, because they might want to be in a relationship, they probably are in a relationship. The other thing that really um, warmed my heart Saturday morning was all the older couples that showed up. Again, it worries about, I, I worry about people who, who kind of quit working on their marriage. And um, that was fascinating to watch. Because again, you know, if you're in a marriage relationship, you're teaching other people how to be married, whether you know it or not, and maybe your kids, your grandkids, people watching you. So yeah, it was a a great, great conference, and he did a great job preaching on Sunday morning here. Um, And that makes me think, uh, for you Methodist types in the room, the John Wesley Institute is an amazing organization out of Washington, D.C. that... that, um, is working on the renewal of the Methodist movement. Now, when they talk about the Methodist movement, uh, they, they mean that broadly, and they usually define it in their literature like I define it, Anglican Methodist Holiness Pentecostal. That's our stream. That's our stream. That's the broad Methodist um, Wesleyan uh, uh, heritage. Those f- groups, Anglican Methodists came out of that, Anglican Methodist Holiness Pentecostal, that's our stream. Uh, we, we either came out of the Anglicans or we produced the others, but that all came out of our 18th century revival. Uh, so I'm thrilled that uh, John Wesley Institute, which is doing amazing work, um, they're starting up a thing that they're calling the School of Methodism. They hope to eventually get to where they offer three of those a year, where they bring in the top-notch scholars to talk to laity, primarily about what it means to be Methodist, what is scriptural Christianity, what, what is worship to be. There's five, five sessions. Um, I was thrilled that um, they're starting those schools of Methodism, and they're starting with their first one here at Wesley. They could have chosen any church in the United States, but they chose here, um, and they didn't even see how good we hosted Gary Chapman last week, and those, those 700 people. But that School of Methodism is going to be an amazing opportunity with some of the... Top scholars who are going to present their stuff in an hour each, which is going to fascinate me. Um, Even the editor of the new hymnal, um, Jonathan Powers, will be here to talk about worship. Um, uh, But it's going to be a great experience. Um, It's very affordable. You get get lunch on Saturday. Registration, I think, is 25 bucks. All of these great scholars are being flown into High Point. I, I love to see people spend money in High Point. These great scholars are flying into High Point to spend that Friday night and Saturday to like three o'clock together. Uh, we still have quite a bit of room left because we can accommodate 300 in there or a thousand upstairs. But we can feed. Well, Sunday uh, this past weekend we fed 650 people in less than an hour. So um, that's not easy. But we we found them places to sit. But anyway, we'll be hosting the School of Methodism. I. I, I, I'm excited that people from all around the region will come but um, I'm even more excited people that I know will come um, so feel free to take one of those spots if you're in another church um, that, that's that's involved in the, the Methodist renewal, the new Methodism that's interested in theology um, yeah I encourage them to sign up uh, you can go to our website which if you sign up it goes to the John Wesley Institute website but you can see the whole schedule and everything there But I think it's going to be a wonderful Friday night, the 9th of February, and then Saturday, the 10th of February. So, yeah, we've been printing that for a month now, so you probably have have that committed to memory. But if not, start committing it to memory. And I'd love to have a lot of the High Point community and surrounding churches here for that. Preacher, would you pray us out? Sure. Thank you.
1: Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we just come to you now thankful for this word. For Jeff's teaching, I pray, Lord, that we will each ponder this sermon, read it again, study it again, look and see how we apply our lives to it and how it drives us to be better. We pray now, Lord, for your wisdom, your strength to guide us through this day through this week that we may be the disciples that you have called us to be let us now go in your peace in the name of Jesus Christ our lord and savior amen, amen.
0: see you later thanks Dave. You're welcome. everybody doing well in your part of the world <clears throat> yeah yeah
1: they recovering